if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 14. Uh, Genesis 14. And we want to look at the Genesis, if you will, of the city of Jerusalem. What is the first, uh, at the very least, one of the first references to the great city of Jerusalem. And what we see here is that it is the city of righteousness. Now, Bethlehem is the city of sorrow, city of redemption. Here, right from the beginning, we see it is the city of righteousness. So we want to read uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 17, and go through verse 24. Now, those of you who have been coming faithfully on Wednesday nights and have been for quite a while, uh, hopefully this is review for y'all, because uh, we looked at um, this passage several months ago. So hopefully this will be review. Um, but I'm not that naive. Even if you were here, this would probably still sound brand new. Let's be honest, right? So, all right, let's uh, stand uh, with me reading God's word and uh, we'll look at this story. The, uh, Moses writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After his return from the defeat of the Chedorlaomer, that will be on your test, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but that the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Uh, help us, Lord, that we would... Uh, you would open our entire being, our hearts and minds, and our eyes and ears, mouth, hands, or feet, um, that we would see your glory and see here um, a foretaste of the glory to come, and that we worship a true and better Melchizedek, a royal priest. Um, and may I decrease so that you can increase. In name yourself, we pray. Amen. See you. I don't know about you, but I do love a good mystery. Uh, if I'm going to watch a movie or read a a fictional book. Don't read a whole lot of fiction, but if I do, uh, a good mystery is is probably something, a fantasy, something like that. I, I might read. And throughout history, there is a number of uh, famous mysteries. Let me see if you know the answers to any of these. Okay. Hope you're sitting down. Uh, number one, who shot Jr. All right. Now, if you are under forty, you may not know that reference. And by some of y'all's reaction to or over forty, I'm a little worried that you didn't think, hey, I remember that, right? Dallas. Right? Who shot? Isn't that how it ended? Uh, wasn't that the mystery? Someone shot Jr. And, um, and that was the season, or a, a season finale. Yeah, it, yeah, and and they never solved it, did they? It was just, uh, just, and that that was the promotion the CBS had was who shot Jr. They, they wanted you to leave the show, uh, wondering, you know, something like that, you know. Uh, Perhaps the, uh, the most famous one, because America is obsessed with conspiracy. Of course, we're obsessed with conspiracy because we don't believe in truth. One does lead into the other. And uh, the, perhaps, number one uh, uh, conspiracy, mystery, if you will, is who assassinate former President uh, Kennedy. Uh, when Amanda and I were coming back from uh, Arizona, we uh, mistakenly thought we had this long layover in Dallas. 
instead of a long layover, what I meant was we better run right off the plane. We may not make the next one. It's funny in a postmodern world we get our words mixed up. And, uh, but, you know, we're sort of thinking, well, if we, we got a couple hours in Dallas, what, what can we do? I said, uh, we were talking about this lunch today. I said, I'm going to go see where President Kennedy was assassinated because someone needs to finally solve that riddle. And, and if uh, uh, the Warren Commission and CBS ain't going to solve it, uh, I, I guess I will. I just have to do that. Well, uh, if we were to look at the greatest mysteries in the Bible, I, I think near the top, if not at the very top, is the mystery of who in the world is not only Carmen Sandiego, but who is this Melchizedek? Uh, this, this is a, a big, big mystery that uh, I will not answer all your questions today. You're welcome. So, um, but it is a major mystery, but it is a significant story. You may remember when we went through the story of Melchizedek, this passage here, I bet we spent six weeks. Remember, we started with Melchizedek, and then we, we did a long biblical theology exploration of the royal priesthood. Uh, not the Levitical priesthood, though we touched on it some, but the royal priesthood. Um, and uh, touched on from, from Adam to Noah to Abraham uh, to uh, Moses to Jethro, David, Solomon, Jesus, all that. I mean, we, we spent weeks on, on this. And um, so, no, we, we won't be able to answer all the questions. But, but, but Melchizedek's narrative here. He, he, he isn't mentioned much outside, at least in narrative uh, context, never mentioned again. Shows up in some of the Psalms and a little bit of the New Testament. But, but this is it. This is, this is all the nuggets you, you get of him. And although there's a lot of mystery around him, it is, it is central to our understanding of redemption. And it's the first introduction we get of the city of Jerusalem. Well, let's start with a little bit of background here, the first 16 verses. And what we get here is the War of the Nine Kings. Uh, that's, that's what I want to call it because I'm a, a Hobbit fan, uh, where you have the uh, Battle of the Five Armies there at the end of the Hobbit. Uh, in the Hobbit, it's one sentence long, I think. And it consists of Bilbo being knocked out, and he doesn't remember anything else that happened at the end. In the movie, it's a three-hour scene. Okay? So... You do with that whatever you want. I know what I think about it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, here you, you get a battle of, of a war of nine kings, four foreign kings, right? They're outside the Jordan Valley. They're led by this guy named Keter Leomer, uh, or however else you want to pronounce it, your truth, uh, I guess. Uh, they invade five local kings of the Jordan Valley, and they invade because they refuse to pay tribute. Right, and this was a major issue in the ancient Near Eastern world. Still, a little bit here here in our world today, not not, not like it was then. That if you would pay tribute, uh, either uh, if you don't want them to invade, right, or uh, if you want in the time of war help, right. Uh, and so uh, the tribute was significant. We just uh, finished reading in David. Remember that with the Syrians, uh, he got them to pay tribute to him. It went all the way up to the Euphrates River, and they said, enough's enough, we'll, we'll give you tribute instead of the Ammonites. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this was a common at this time. Now, you need to remember, significant here is Lot. Now, we can't talk a lot about Lot, uh, but Lot, you remember, chose for himself the Jordan Valley. You remember that him and Abraham weren't getting along? It, aren't you glad that family conflict happened in the ancient Near Eastern culture and not today? Aren't you glad? Uh, by the way, you'll be spending time with that family you have no conflict with this week, more than likely. Aren't you glad all of that is in the past? You know, with technology, we got rid of conflict in families. Isn't that nice? Ah, oh, I mean, it's just wonderful. Just absolutely wonderful. Well, there's conflict there. And so Abraham says, uh, you go this way and I'll go the other way. Which way you want to go? And the text tells us Lot chose the land he thought resembled the Garden of Eden. 
But what Lot found was not a garden, but a wilderness. A wilderness of violence and warfare and chaos. And so uh, Lot is caught in the middle of this, this, this warfare, this battle. And so we thought it was going to be utopian, it was dystopian, and uh, he eventually discovers, or Abram discovers, that his nephew is in trouble. He's been captured, he's a prisoner of war, what are we going to do? So Abram does what any man would do in that situation, right? He rounds up the boys, sends a group text out, and uh, he, he says, we're going to go get our boy back. That's exactly what he does. Uh, you remember that Abraham is really more of a chief here. And he would have a lot of people under him for various reasons and various ways. So he would round up the crew that he has, uh, and then he would go to some of these other kingdoms. And, and he says, look, we all live here, and, and this is a problem. And uh, let's make an agreement. Uh, I'm going to lead you into battle. Now, Abraham here is up there in years and has no business going to battle. He's going to go into battle because he's a real man. We don't have men like this anymore. And he goes up in the battle, and he leads troops. And the battle is pretty sure, the, the strategy is not brilliant, right? He splits them in half. You go this way, you go that way, and we'll win. And he won, okay? Uh, and, and as a result, he, he rescued Lot. Now, what's interesting about this battle is a story we don't think much about Abraham is that it purposely mirrors the story of Gideon. Now, how many soldiers did Gideon take into battle in Judges 7? He took 300 troops. Abram took 318. Uh, and the uh, strategy was similar and, and everything else. So we were purposely to see the connection here to Gideon. But what's, what's the point, right? Uh, what's the point of that little story? Well, one is uh, it's a story about redemption. Abram risks his life and the life of his household in order to rescue Lot, who is taken captive. It's, it's, it's literally a story of redemption. He goes to set the captives free. Literally, that's the story. Abraham risks everything for the sake of Lot. So when we get to the narrative here, verses 24 to, 17 to 24, it's coming right off the heels of that victory that Abram has. And, and so you see there, verse 17, after his return from the feet of of Hedor Leomor, if you want to pronounce that C-H right. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So what you get here is the new king of Sodom, because the old king of Sodom died in the war. There's a new king of Sodom. He goes out to meet with Abram in the king's valley. Uh, so this is a, an important event, right? Uh, what the narrator is doing is he's setting you up for what will be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram did not set out to destroy Sodom. God did. And so the previous king, again, chapter 14, verse 2, died in battle. And so the Meda King's Valley, Shaveh means plain or level plain, um, and is likely located just outside the city of Jerusalem, possibly Kidron Valley. Um, it's mentioned in 2 Samuel 18, 18, but we... We won't take the time for, for all of that. Uh, Absalom goes out there, and I believe he meets his father at King's Valley. Uh, but this new king likely, likely meets with Abram to show gratitude to him and to give honor in the spoils of war. Right? This is not Sodom's victory. This is Abram's victory. So he gets the choice of the spoils of war. Well, out of nowhere, this random figure shows up named Melchizedek. And you'll notice there, verse 18, he just pops up unannounced. If you've been reading the story, you've got all these weird names and these weird tribes and, and city-states and whatnot. Then all of a sudden, here we, we get this little peace treaty sort of place. We, we're going to divide you know, the, the spoils of war and all this sort of And all of a sudden, this other king shows up. 
It was unannounced. And his name is Melchizedek, verses 18 to 22. And his suddenness is not an accident in the narrative. He's not the only character in the Bible to do something like this. If you're reading through the Bible, right, and, and the Bible usually introduces characters, gets you ready for them, all that. We saw that with Ruth today, right? Ruth isn't introduced until into a story of sorrow, right? We meet Elimelech and Mal and Achillean and Naomi. And then, and then we're told uh, Mal and Achillean named uh, married two women, Orpah, who eventually leaves the narrative, and then Ruth. So we're introduced to Ruth, right? She didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Well, Melchizedek does it. Another character does it, and that is Elijah, and Elijah in 1 Kings 17, is, his story starts out with now Elijah the Tishbite. That's all you need to know about this guy. Background. Elijah was a Tishbite, and he came up to Ahab and said, knock it off or else. And the or else was three years plus of a famine. Right? That's how, that's how his story begins. We, we get nothing else about him uh, in his story. And, and Melchizedek is never introduced beyond his role as a king. He simply appears. Again, that is very important because the narrative wants him to be a mystery. The writer of Hebrews would describe him as one without a genealogy. Now, I think he had a literal genealogy. He was a biological specimen like the rest of us. He had a mom and dad. But what the writer of Hebrews understands is that the narrator of Genesis wants him to pop up out of nowhere, wants him to be mysterious. What does Melchizedek have to do with this battle of the nine armies? Well, just as he arrives, he disappears. We have this brief meeting here in, in chapter 14, just a few verses, and he is gone. His name, as we mentioned briefly this morning, means my king is righteous. So Melech uh, Zedek. Uh, and that I in Hebrew is often means my. So my king is righteous. Um, he is mentioned in Psalm 110. He is mentioned in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 and never again in the Bible. Now, what we did a few months ago when we did this theme is we broaden it that Melchizedek fits within a biblical motif, uh, but he himself only appears outside of this narrative three other times. His title is he is king of Salem. Uh, Salem, we know, is the city of Jerusalem. We know this from Psalm 76.2. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. This is one of the great things about Hebrew poetry and its use of parallelism. It'll say the same thing twice in two different ways. Uh, like, like a four-year-old asking a question. You ask the same question in five different ways, and you have to answer it in five different ways, right? And, and the, the Hebrew Bible does that in poetry. So it mentions Salem and Zion, and Zion is, is almost always in reference to Jerusalem, either prophetically, messianically, or literally. And Salem means peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It just means peace. And so here you have the king of righteousness comes from the city of peace. This is just like the book of Ruth, isn't it? Uh, not always in the Bible do these names mean something, but you're getting a hint here that these names really do mean something here. And so Jerusalem, there's some debate as to its etymology. It likely means teaching of peace or the foundation of peace. So you see there, Yerushalayim. It's got shalom in it, much the same way Salem or uh, shalom does. We should know he is a Canaanite king as the city at this time remained in Canaanite hands until David made it his capital. We actually looked at that a few, I don't know, weeks or months ago in our study of 2 Samuel. Now notice his mission, right? We saw his name, his, his title. His mission is given there. He was priest of God Most High. Notice there, he is a royal priest, king and priest. Now to 
21st century American evangelicals, those two things don't go together. Right? You have kings, you have priests. Why? Because separation of state and church. That is not the case in ancient Near Eastern world where a lot of kings were viewed as either uh, mouthpieces of, of the divine or they were divine themselves. So the Egyptians, the, the pharaoh, was a type of God. Um, Caesar was really a type of God and would receive uh, the, the sort of adulation. Some of the Caesars had temples of worship and whatnot. This was very common at this time. So, so these two worlds merge quite easily. Um, Abraham is very much a royal priest. Or he, he builds an altar. He leads uh, as a chief of, of this area. Uh, Noah does the same thing. Jethro is like this. You know, Jethro is described as a priest of, of God Most High. Uh, he's a chief down in Midian. Right? He, he fits the same sort of pattern of a royal priest um, as well. Uh, and as priest, he blesses Abram who recognizes him as priest of God. Knows they're blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. This is, this is the work that a priest does. And, um, and Abram responds to this royal priest by treating him as a priest. He gives him a tithe, right? Every time a preacher in a Baptist church mentions tithe, everyone's hairs in the back of their head stands up, right? But it's right there in the text. This is the first reference to a tithe in the Bible. It's right there. And it's given to a Gentile uh, royal priest from Abraham. Gives him a tenth of of everything that he has. Um, And this is the first time the word, the Hebrew word for priest is used. Now there's priest before this, but it's the first time priest is used. So you see the connection between a tithe, that is giving of something that you've been blessed with to the Lord, right? In this case is in the context of of a priest. Abraham, again, is, is a type of priest. Uh, so those two ideas are connected with each other from the very beginning. Worship is not simply receiving. Worship is primarily giving. Right? And that's right from the beginning here. Having been blessed by the nations, that's one of the things we need to see here. That's the promise of Abraham. Abraham responds by giving. Uh, he's a blessing to the nations here by being a blessing to this priest of God Most High. And notice his gifts, finally, his gifts, bread and wine. This is essentially a meal of peace between two parties. Now, what the narrator is doing here, you'll notice there are two kings interacting with Abraham. There's the king of Salem. There's the king of Sodom. Sodom, we've been told in Genesis 13, 13, was a wicked city and they were great sinners against the world, or against the Lord. So Sodom is the wicked city, and now you'll notice the wicked city is tempting Abraham with honor and praise. And here's the question the reader has to ask. Go back, this is the first time you've ever read it, and you're just reading the Bible for the first time. And, and you realize there's themes, you know, that, that the Bible is introduced, you've got to pick up on. The question is, will Abram be another Adam? Will he eat of this forbidden fruits? Here's a wicked city. We were introduced to chapter 13. Here it is that Abram has rescued Lot. They've come to this plain, right, in the Jordan Valley, which is supposed to be a type of garden. And Abram is given a choice. Will he choose the king of righteousness? Or will he choose the king of wickedness? Which one? We have these two kings. Does it help if we call them two trees? It's a very similar story, and Abram must choose. So that's why we're, we're told all about Melchizedek in, chapter, in verses 18 to 20, and he disappears, right? In verse 21, we're back to the king of Sodom. 
And so uh, notice what the uh, son of my king does. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So he requests Abram to take the spoils of war, but leave the people of war. So as the victor, Abram is offered riches and wealth. Here, Abram is tempted the same way Lot was when he chose the Jordan Valley. Lot saw riches of the Jordan Valley and took it. That language of taking is important. It's what Eve did. She took the fruit and ate it. Now Abram sees the spoils of the Jordan Valley. Again, will he take, will he eat of the forbidden fruit? Notice what he does, verse 22. Is Abram takes an oath now to take, uh, not to take the spoils or the people. Abram said to the king of Psalm, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Now where did he hear about a possessor of heaven and earth? Your boy Melchizedek. All right? So he, he is, he's been blessed by the Lord as seen through the priest, and now he will choose the way of God. Very different from the choice Adam and Eve make. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share the men who are with me. Let Anner Eshel Mamre take the share. So he does not want the nations, notice this, he does not want the nations to be a blessing to Abram primarily. Abram is called to be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, right? So, so the idea of later Jerusalem and stuff is you have a type of garden, a paradise, and through that, Israel becomes a blessing to the nation. That's how you extend the borders of Israel. So when the nations come in, like the Queen of Sheba, she is blessed because she is getting closer to the presence of God through the people of God. So through you, the promise was, was to Abram, the nations will be blessed. And those who bless you in, as a result will be blessed. But those who curse you will be cursed. But you are called to be a blessing um, to the nations. And he understands that if what I don't need is for the wicked city of Sodom to say, well, Abram is where he is because I made him rich. And that's not much different today, is it, right? Um, you know, remember when I gave you all that, whatever it is, you owe me sort of thing. Abram doesn't want that. He has learned, we could add, from his Egyptian experience that, again, we've talked about that in some detail on Wednesday nights. The nations will not protect and provide for Abram. That is God's job. Yahweh will provide for him, the possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram is rejecting the way of the nations embodied by Sodom. He's adopting the way of Melchizedek. That is God most high. Now, as you can imagine... Uh, there's a lot of questions about what do we do with this text. This brief episode zeroes in on Abram's relationship with two kings. On the one hand, it recalls Abram's calling to be a blessing to the nations. Here, however, the nations are also a blessing to Abram. So here's the first question. Who is your boy Melchizedek? Uh, well, there's some options we have here. I'll give you my view. One is he is Sham, the son of Noah. But you didn't see that one coming out of left field, did you? Now, I don't think that's who he is. But if you look at the genealogies, how long people lived, that is one option people give. Now, I don't think there is a linguistic or etymological connection between Melchizedek and Shem. Right? But um, nevertheless, that argument has, has been, been made. 
Another one is people suggest he's an angel. You remember that angels uh, don't, aren't chubby with wings and harps. In fact, they don't have wings at all in the Bible. Uh, they often appear as human-like. If I keep reading the story of, of Abraham, remember right before Solomon is, is destroyed, three uh, or two angels and, and Yahweh himself uh, appear embodied before Abraham, and they're called men. And remember that when those angels go to Sodom, they are treated as men. Lot is concerned that if you sleep out in the courtyard, you will be abused because that's what these men do to men. And so he, he shows hospitality to him inside. And what do the men outside want to do? They want to mistreat what they perceive to be men. So no, no fancy wings or anything like that. So some see this text and say, well, he's clearly uh, an embodied person. who looks embodied to everyone else. He might be an angel. I, I, I don't, I've never heard of an angel being uh, a, a king of, of a city. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there's biblical precedent of that. You can correct me if, if you want. One popular option is he is the pre-incarnate Jesus, or what you may say is the, is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Um, but Hebrews contradicts this view. Hebrews 7, 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Notice he resembles the Son of God. Um, not that he was the Son of God. So I think the writer of Hebrews is very clear. Cannot be the pre-incarnate Jesus. Here is sort of my conclusion, in case you care. Uh, it'll be on the quiz later. He was an ancient king of Salem who worshipped Yahweh as the royal priest. And in this row, he embodies the royal priesthood that will ultimately find its fulfillment in Christ, as we'll see. So what do we do with this? All right, with, with that, what, what do we do with this passage? What's the point? A couple of things that we need to see here. I think I got three things here. Um, two of them look repetitive because I have a typo. Number one, Eden. The story of Eden. This is a retelling, as hopefully you can tell already, this is a retelling of the Eden story. Instead of two trees, we have two kings. King of Sodom meets with Abram and offers him spoils. King of Salem meets with Abram outside of Jerusalem, offers him a meal and a blessing. Wine is the fruit of the vine. I know Baptists don't know how wine works, but I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Wine comes from a plant. And in the Old Testament, plants and trees and bushes and all that are connected in the motif throughout particularly the Old Testament. Right? And we've given several examples of that in the past. So the king of Sodom comes to take. You'll notice there in verse 21, give me the people. He comes to take. Whereas the king of Salem comes to give. And what does he come to give? Food and blessing. Genesis 12 says, those who I bless, those who bless you, I will bless. Melchizedek in the Bible is the first person representing the nations to bless Abraham. Sodom is the land of evil. Salem is the land of peace. So in many ways, it's a retelling of Eden. So, so notice here that Lot thought that Eden will be found among the nations. Because the land is pretty and it's fruitful and all that. But what we've seen in our study of Abraham is that God can turn a wilderness into an oasis. Remember the story of Hagar, right? That she, she's wandering and lost. She lays uh, Ishmael down uh, under the bush. There's, there's a bush again, right? There's another plant. And she lays him there ready for them both to go die. And what does God do? He opens her eyes to see that in the wilderness there is a well. 
And that well you can still find today. The Muslims often gather to it on the way to Mecca each year. Because God brings an oasis out of the wilderness. It's not something man can create. It is something only God can create. And men will, will ruin Eden when they choose the way of Solomon, not the way of Salem. When they choose the wrong tree. We will make a wilderness out of an oasis, out of a garden, rather than make a garden out of an oasis. The second thing here is Messiah. This builds anticipation for the Messiah. We are supposed to ask, who is the king of Jerusalem? Melchizedek is purposely mysterious. Now, we are looking for a character like him, namely, one who is king and one who is priest. But in the nation of Israel, those two roles are separated. So you have the Levites, and eventually you get the, 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 the line of Judah, particularly with David, right? You cannot have a Levite who is going to be a king. Those are two separate options. But lo and behold, what does God do here? Is he brings together a royal priest whose whose priesthood is greater than that of the Levites. Right? So so, so you have the separation in Jewish religion, but, but in the biblical motif, we're not looking for a Levite's. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't qualify. We're looking for one who's a royal priest, one who fits the description of priest, one who fits the description of of, uh, a king. And so this this theme, again, we've already touched on this, Adam and Noah, uh, Abraham, Melchizedek, Moses, Jethro, David, just to name a few. So it's no accident that David establishes his capital in the city of Salem, in Jerusalem. Um, And it's no accident that God makes another eternal covenant with David, who is the king of Jerusalem. And so you remember our study that David often acts as priest. To give you a simple example that we've looked at recently, David wears the garments of a priest as he escorts the uh, Ark of the Covenants into the city of David, into Jerusalem. He is playing the role of priests. That's not the king's job. It's the priest's job, yet he does it. And the Bible doesn't act like that's unusual, although it is unusual. He shouldn't be doing that. Saul couldn't do that, but why David? Because in the narrative, we see David represents another type of Melchizedek. He is a type of royal priest. Likewise, the psalmist sees the future Messiah as king and priest, Psalm 110, 104. The Lord says to my Lord, uh, Jesus will pick up on that in the Gospel of John. Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Notice the uh, royal language. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice there, you will rule You are priest, looking forward to Messiah. And so what we are to see here is more than what happened with Abram in in King's Valley. What we're going to see here is that there is a type that is introduced here, that we are to anticipate a true and better royal priesthood. And that leads thirdly to Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. If we had time, we could look at Hebrews 7 in some detail. I think we did that when we looked at this story months ago. Hebrews 7.22 simply says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
You see, if Jesus is merely a Levite, then we come here not for the Lord's Supper, but to sacrifice a, a, a little lamb. All right? But because he's royal priest, he, is, he offers himself as the lamb. He offers the, the sacrifice as priest, and he rules and reigns in righteousness because the king is righteous as a true and better Melchizedek. Also notice that Melchizedek comes out of Salem to seal this covenant. You see it there? So, so they meet at the king's valley, likely in Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. And, and, and Melchizedek, the royal priest, must come outside the city in order to seal this covenant. The writer of Hebrews makes a big deal of that because he says, like Melchizedek, Jesus is taken outside of the city of Jerusalem where the covenant will be sealed by the shedding of his blood. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people with his own blood. Here, Melchizedek, he's going to come right out of that city in order to secure that covenant where, where, where the nations will be a blessing to Israel and Israel through Abraham will be a blessing unto the nations. Oh, and by the way, what ordinance did Melchizedek leave behind? What sort of meal of blessing did Melchizedek celebrate with Abram? Remember that King of Sodom comes to take, give me the people. King of righteousness comes to give, to share in fellowship, to celebrate, to worship their risen Savior, the, the possessor of heaven and earth. What meal did they share in? Bread and wine. What did we do this morning? We celebrated in bread and wine. Surely, when you read this, this we read through this story, right? Your, your, uh, your, your, your antennas went up, didn't they? Bread and wine? I've read that before. There's a reason why you've read that before. So when Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, yes, he is looking back to the Passover where the blood of the Lamb was shed so that our sins can be forgiven and our shame can be cleansed. And that is the good news of the gospel. Yet he's looking farther back to a king of righteousness who is a royal priest who offers himself and by sacrifice and offering himself outside the city gates, outside of Salem, in the Kidron Valley, if you will, he draws us into fellowship represented by bread and wine. Well, we have said the last two weeks that Bethlehem is first introduced to us as the city of sorrow. And out of that story of sorrow comes a story of redemption, a story of Ruth. In Jerusalem, we are immediately directed to a city of covenant, a city of Messiah, a city of grace, a city of peace, city of righteousness. And the good news is that Jesus embodies all of that. Because he is the royal priest, because he is a true and better Melchizedek, he is our king. He is our mediator. He's our true and better Melchizedek. So we come to him and submit to him with all authority. Heaven and earth is given to him. We come to him knowing that all of our sins are satisfied, that he took upon himself with the cleansing of our soul. And it started before Abram was named Abraham. Let's go, Lord, in prayer.